The OCD and Anxiety Podcast by Robert James Coaching. Hello and welcome to the OCD and Anxiety Podcast, where we explore how to have a more positive relationship with anxiety disorders, taking back control so that you can start living the life you choose and not the one chosen by your fears. Hello everybody and welcome to episode 135. I hope that you guys are doing very well today. If you do happen to be struggling with OCD or anxiety, you can get a free session with me to get that. All you need to do is to head over to my website www.robertjamescoaching.com and there you can leave me a message and we can arrange the free session. In today's podcast, I interview the amazing James Withy. James is an author with lived experience of anxiety, OCD, depression, anorexia, and PTSD. His best-selling book, How to Tell Depression to Piss Off, uh, 40 Ways to Get Back uh, Your Life, was published by Little Brown uh, in May 2020 in paperback, ebook, and audiobook. The follow-up book, How to Tell Anxiety to Sod Off, Uh, 40 Ways to Get Your Life Back, uh, also published by Little Brown, is going to be out in January 2022. He is also the founder of the Recovery Letters Project, which publishes letters from people recovering from depression addressed to people experiencing it. To check out that, you can head over to uh, www.therecoveryletters.com. He's also published many other books, which I would recommend that you check out. There is more information about those in the show notes. James lives in Hove in East Essex uh, in the UK with his husband and emotionally damaged rescue cat. He writes and speaks about depression, anxiety, grief, mental health and mental illness. I think you'll find that today's interview is really fascinating and and moving. James has had to overcome uh, a lot in his life, has had uh, a a lot of difficult experiences with different mental health uh, issues and has come out of it uh, in in a really positive way with uh, with, setting up this this book, The Recovery Letters, and then going on to, to write lots of other books about mental health. And so it's been a really uh, interesting journey for him. I think he has um, a really good way of, of looking at mental health challenges from the perspective of, of hope. And that really shines uh, across when he, he speaks uh, about his, his story. If you would like to find out more about James, you can head over to www.jameswithy.com. Uh, or you can also find him on uh, Instagram. As always, if you have any questions, then do please let me know. And I really hope you enjoy. Many thanks. Hi, James. Welcome to the podcast. Hello. Thank you very much. That's great to have you here. So today we're coming from uh, my camper van, my, uh, which is uh, we're currently part on a mountain in the Pyrenees. And there's quite a lot of wind today. So if you hear any kind of gusts or anything in the background, that's that's why. <laughs> <laughs> 
yeah i'm unfortunately not on top of a mountain which would be very nice <laughs> but yeah I'm, I'm here i'm here in brighton in a warm house in brighton i imagine it's in a warm uh, house in brighton this is true yeah this is true. <laughs> <laughs> fantastic so to to start off could you just tell us um a little bit about yourself please so yeah so i'm james i i live with um anxiety and depression and uh ptsd um but i'm also an author and a speaker um so i'm an author and uh editor of five books with uh little brown in 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 the uk um the my fourth one so is coming out in january which is called how to tell anxiety to sort of um and then i have a book about grief coming out in july called how to get through grief um so yeah it will be a nice busy busy year next year um but yeah i live alongside you know mental illness um every day so yeah wow okay and so um these these struggles with mental health um have been happening for for a long time when did you first um really start struggling with it do you know what? I, I think it's interesting when you look back, isn't it? But I, I think actually I remember struggling as a child. So I can remember, um, yeah, so my dad died very early when I was five. Mm. Um, wow. And then, yeah, so incredibly, incredibly young. Um, and was then abused, sexually abused by a family friend. So I had a lot of difficult childhood, childhood stuff. Wow, yeah. Which is, you know, so yeah. And then also I think a, a you know a predisposition in my family to, to mental illness. So mm. kind of those things combined, you know, definitely uh definitely impacted. So I, I can remember really young, um it specifically being very anxious. So being very anxious about school, um, not being very good at maths and sort of back in back in the dark days of the sort of um late 70s and 1980s you know teaching was very different so I, I remember very clearly you know there being mass tests when I was about seven and league tables for your timetables and all that kind of stuff and being incredibly anxious mm. and being anxious about sport and kind of rubbish at sport and you know not wanting to go to school so those anxieties you know very very strong so so from very young really um and then have struggled pretty much all my life really in one form or another so sometimes more acute and sometimes more manageable but but always there always there so I think looking back a mixture of uh trauma and depression and anxiety and 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 definitely some some OCD which I've which I've struggled with over the years as well and sort of again in in at different points in my life um worse than others but yeah it's, it's always it's always been with me and I think only the last 15 years maybe have I probably kind of identified as somebody with a mental illness and I yeah. think that's a lot about a lot about shame really, and you know not wanting to be seen as you know somebody with a, with a mental illness yeah absolutely and I can imagine that um you know growing up in in the 70s and early 80s in the UK you know, when there was really no kind of information going about around mental health issues. And, and so I imagine that must have been a, a real struggle. What did you, what did you try to do to, to, to deal with it at that early age? Do you know what? I mean, there was literally nothing. So, when, so 
there was absolutely nothing. So, so when my dad died very early, nothing. There was there was no interventions at all. Mm. So there was, um, I, I mean, really, really nothing. So nothing happened to school. Um, nothing happened to you know the GP, the doctor. Nothing happened at all. So there really was no support. There was no sort. Of, so you know there was kind of some support within the family. Um, but also, I think a lot of my relatives were very aware of, you know, kind of wanting to protect my mom. And so we had to behave. And, you know, I had a very young sister, so a lot of time looking after her. So really, there was nothing. There was nothing, you know, if you look at now and you're know, having counselors in schools and, you know, access to kind of therapies and support for bereaved kids or kids have been abused, which is, which is there, there was just nothing. So, um, but of course, you, you don't know any other way. So you just have to muddle through. Um, but of course, that muddling through is very traumatic and, and causes and causes a lot of scars. You know? mm, so, absolutely. Yeah. Mm. So this kind of uh, almost the, the stiff upper lip uh, British motto was was um, the only way that you really had to, to deal with it, because, you know, obviously you had to find a way to get through. And unfortunately, you know, what we often do is just uh, to push down all of those difficult emotions to not allow them to come up to, to the surface uh, in order for us to just be able to to get through. No? Yeah, abso- absolutely. I think because there was there was no one asking. I mean, you know, my mum would ask and she, you know, undoubtedly did her best in the circumstances. Um, but there was no one asking me about about how I was. Um, or what impact the death of my dad had or you know um so there was there was nothing you know so so yeah it was a case of well you you don't you don't know what you know could be available so it wasn't like kind of going you're not going as a sort of a five-year-old kid going I should be having counseling you know you just don't know so you just you just carry on but you carry on very wounded so you're kind of dragging your wounded foot, foot along of course as you keep dragging that wounded foot along it gets worse and it gets worse and it gets worse and that you know that wounded foot you know then impacts you massively in adulthood so yeah I, I think I think now there's much more of an acknowledgement of you, you know adverse childhood experiences and what and what they do to kids um but then you know even if that was talked about that didn't amount to anything in terms, in terms of support so you know you just carried on you just carried on and, and you and you you know you weren't aware of what you needed um which mm. you know children children are so you carry on but and so it's only now as an adult that i can look back and go oh my goodness you know, wow look at the lack of support look at look at how difficult it was um that's when you that's when you realize the impact um but then you know yeah it, it, you know we're rubbish in the uk about about talking about you know, we're still rubbish, despite the changes, we're still rubbish, you know, because we're not great at dealing with other people's vulnerabilities, you know, mm. people find that scary and uncomfortable and they don't want to say and they're worried about making it worse and, you know, and that's still, you know, things have changed, you know, massively, but there is still that kind of reticence or, you know, I don't really want to talk about this, I don't know what to say, what will I do if they cry and so on and so on, and, yeah. and that message, you know, infiltrates every fiber of, of you know, a child or, or an adult in terms of how you should hold stuff in and not and not talk about it and i yeah i i didn't talk about it 
you know i didn't talk about that i didn't talk about when i realized i was gay i didn't you know, i didn't talk about any of it so if you then become very accustomed to keep keeping that inside which is yeah hugely yeah. done yeah 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 i agree it's such a, an unhealthy climate uh in in the uk and um obviously things have changed a lot and little by little things are improving but yeah there's a lot of work to do still um okay and so these really difficult experiences um led to to you in adulthood um struggling struggling a lot um could you tell us a little bit more about that, please? That kind of process of growing up, moving into adulthood, and then the, cha- the, the challenges that you were experiencing with depression and anxiety, PTSD. Yeah, so it's it, it's interesting. So I, I kind of remember sort of sort of going into teenage years and and having sort of quite active suicidal thoughts, and then and then as I kind of moved and kind of went away to university, was having kind of more suicidal thoughts and really struggling. Um, in particular, probably at that point with, with anxiety um, and just not knowing, and being paralyzed, being utterly, utterly paralyzed by it. Um, and just having no ability or sort of skills at hand to know what to do. So I think, you know, things are, different in the internet age but you know so I went to university in let me have a look I need to think back um 1991 so around I suppose about 93 the internet starts to get used a little at at that point but you know there is nowhere you're still looking at you know the yellow pages and stuff (laughs) you know there is no go-to place to to find out about how to manage anxiety and you can google that within seconds now so yeah there was there was again so going into adulthood and as a student and sort of in my in my you know late teens and early 20s again there's there's nothing and you know there was a university counselor i think who who i don't think i saw and again there was a lot of stigma around you know no one talked about mental health you know and um it was again you didn't you didn't talk about it you sort of you, you carried on or you know again limping along so it, it's a kind of cumulative effect, really, of, of not having the tools. So going, well, I feel like this, but I've absolutely no idea how to how to deal with it. Um, so I would, you know, drink too much or, you know, become obsessive about things or, you know, trying to be a perfectionist about stuff, which was has always mm. been a huge bit of um, stuff for me. And I think yeah. that's very much related to... To, to my OCD is about trying to do things perfectly and wanting Absolutely. things to work out perfectly. Yeah, yeah. And obviously that's a, you know, a path that leads nowhere. Um, so yeah, I, so I started to try and control things um, more and more and more. And and what I ended up controlling was my eating. So, so that became a huge thing. So uh, I suppose in my, so I just left university and um so yeah really really started to control my eating and when i look back i you know i i'm incredibly thin. sort of i think you know would probably be diagnosed as anorexic at that point mm. um because the one thing that i could control was was my food intake yeah um and i just lost a lot of weight so you know that was sort of spurring me on going oh this is fantastic this is something that i can control this, this is great you know 
and I so I was eating very 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 little for you know a couple of years um, and got very obsessive about calories in particular and in particular fat intake mm. so I would look it would take me a long time in the supermarket to go through each packet and see how much fat intake there was in each particular thing so I would only, you know, could only have a particular particular sauce with vegetables. I was just eating steamed vegetables and a sauce that had a very low fat, and that's really all I was eating. Um, and got, you know, yeah, very very, uh, you know, obsessive about how much carbs I was taking in, and and kind of um, doing that, looking at myself and seeing myself as fat. And so even when I remember people making jokes about how thin I was. And me thinking they were being sarcastic and were calling me fat. So, you know, it, it, it was a huge, huge bit of my life. That, and, and something I still, I still struggle with, that, you know, still an ongoing battle around, you know, calorie intake. And, and you know, I'm much better at it, much better at it. But, um, but the, that, that sense of needing to control something after having so many things out of my control was, uh, was something that, at the time felt really important but you know I can now see just how incredibly damaging it was I mean both both physically and you know and mentally and it took me a couple of years really and, and for my sister to teach me about calorie intake and do sort of science with me really about calorie intake um, for me to, to sort of start to get a bit better with that stuff but it lingers, you know, this stuff lingers. So, you know, I'm able to manage much better when I can call out the voice, you know, the kind of anorexic voice that is telling me not to eat or not to do certain things. Um, and I, I'm much better at going, okay, that's the anxiety voice, that's the depression voice, that's, you know, that's the OCD voice, that's the eating disorder voice, and can recognize the voices in my head um that, that are saying certain things and call them out and go right okay so that voice telling me not to have that album croissant which you know when i'm out with friends is is definitely the eating voice or the voice telling me to check that i've blown out the candles five times you know so yeah. i light a lot of candles yeah. in winter you know so going you need to check them five times or you know you need to turn the bathroom switch on twice in case um, someone comes along and electrocutes itself. Um, so it, it, what I do is kind of call out the voices and go, okay, separate out the illness from me. And that helps immeasurably. But yeah, yeah, it's something that you keep, it's an active process of having to keep at it and keep at it and keep at it. And it's like, it's like weeds. If you don't keep hacking them down, they keep coming back. You know, you can't just kind of go, oh, well, I've, 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 tried, I've taken away the weeds and it's fine, you know? It's an ongoing active process of having to do this. And it's natural, you know, it's really tiring, but the benefits are there. Absolutely. Yeah. I think uh, learning how to manage it in, in the long run is, is uh, you know, the most reasonable thing that you can actually do. And, you know, I think uh, what you just said there is a really good point of bringing more consciousness to, to the process. Um, you know, really understanding the different voices that we have inside um you know which are are berating us and and telling us to do this or to do that or you know to be ashamed of this or you know shame as you were talking about earlier is, is such a big part of of all of this stuff that you're talking about 
Um, okay, this is this is really interesting. And would you say that that then there was a kind of a, a really a rock bottom point with all of this? Could you could you kind of tell us about that when it kind of got to its worst point? Because clearly you seem today like you're in a much better place. Yeah, so I, I think so. My rock bottom was 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 definitely ten year, ten years ago. So yeah, let me think. Yeah, so pretty much ten years ago. Um, and I, yeah, we had just moved from Scotland to Brighton and my husband had been made redundant and we had sold our, our flat in Scotland and we're trying to buy here and I didn't have a job and kind of various stresses kind of, you know, came along really. And, um, and I, I, you know, it, you know, pretty much the straws breaking the camel's back, you know, there were just too many things and too many things and too many things. And um, I end up, yeah, very suicidal, actively suicidal. And um, went to A&E to try and get help. And they were terrible, <laughs> you know, as often, often is the case, unfortunately, certainly in this country. Um, and I kind of waited for about six hours and, and, and they sent me off for some, some Valium. And then the next day I went to my doctors and went, I'm still unwell, I'm st I still need help, I still feel actively suicidal. Um, and then got uh, through to the crisis team. So it, for a few weeks I was um, being seen by the crisis team, um, but then still actively suicidal. So I went to stay in a place called Maytree in London, which is a, it's called a sanctuary for the suicidal. And I went to stay there. And that was incredibly helpful, actually, amazingly helpful. Um, that was, um, did you have to pay for that yourself, though? No, that was free. That is okay. free. So, um, so what's happening more and more, which is amazing, is that these centres are popping up, run by charity, for mm. people that are suicidal. So there's, yeah, there's Matria opening another one, I think, in Manchester. There's a place called James's Place in Liverpool. Uh, which is for um, men who are feeling suicidal. So they are, and there's, there's, there's definitely one in, another one in London as well. So they are non-medical settings run by charity. Okay. Um, there to support people. That's, that's brilliant. That's really it's amazing. good. Yeah, amazing. Amazing. I mean, yeah, truly amazing stuff. Because I was really surprised when you said that you went to A&E with, you know, feeling that suicidal, and their response was to send you home with some Valium. I mean, yeah. that's that's shocking. That's absolutely oh, yeah. shocking. Absolutely. Right. I, I mean, yeah, I have I have an, a legion of shocking tales around psychiatric care. So yeah, yeah. That, you know, so the first at A and E that time, I you get sort of triaged by a doctor. Yeah. And um, I, so I said to her, look, I'm 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 feeling actively suicidal, and she couldn't look me in the eye at all. But she looked everywhere else apart from me. And then the, the psychiatric nurse that I saw that sent me off to the Valium told me that I was oh, being oversensitive. And then the doctor the following day, when I said I was still feeling suicidal, sighed, sighed deeply, and uh, said, Oh, you know, I suppose you need to wait outside and I'll call the crisis. So the lack of compassion and care, which still happens to this day, is extraordinary when you're you're literally on the cusp of your life mm. um you know i 
as I've had, you know, as I can count, you know, at least 20 horrific incidents of lack of compassion and care when I've been at my lowest. Um, you know, I've been treated better in a supermarket, you know, asking for beans, you know, I mean, and, and it, it, it's, it's, it's hysterical and true, you know. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So the people that are there to support you, you know, are often not able to do it or don't know how to do it. And, you know, and that's, you know, that's for lots of reasons. That's about funding and that's about stress and that's about lack of training and lots of things. But the bottom line is that, you know, mine and lots of other people's experiences of um, crisis psychiatric influence is, is, is appalling. And, mm. and of course, that then becomes more damaging because you think, well, who do I then go to when I'm in crisis if the people that I'm supposed to go to aren't able to care for me? So you get back further and further into the corner. So, so Maytree for me was, was amazing because they were compassionate and kind and I could talk about feeling suicidal and I had my own room and it was on medical and it was, I had counseling sessions every day and I, you stay for the four days and it just kind of gets you propped up really. It gives you some um, ways of going forward. Um, but obviously, you know, <laughs> The nice narrative story is that after that I would have been completely fine, and you know, mm. but obviously that's that's not how things work. So I then ended up in psychiatric hospital about five months later, which was basically the complete opposite of my kind of matrix. So um, horrendous, just horrendous, scary, frightening, no care. Um, yeah, no real care plan, no sense of um, anything active for me to do. I just stayed in my room. Um, once you're in, it's very difficult to get out of psychiatric hospitals, you know. Um, and I went in voluntarily, um, I suppose involuntarily in, in inverted commas, really, that I agreed that I would go in, so rather than being sectioned. If your section things make it, you know, obviously much more, much more difficult. Mm. Um, so I agreed to go in voluntarily. Um, so, I, but it was it was incredibly traumatic, and, and I didn't receive any kind of therapeutic care at all. I mean, I, I you know they looked at my medication, and I was basically sat in a small room for you know two weeks. Um, it stopped me killing myself, but it didn't it didn't do anything else apart yeah. from that. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then I think when I got out, what I realized, you know, so when I was in um, psych the psychiatric uh, hospital, I realized that actually one of the things that I really needed was to hear about hope. And no one had really talked to me about hope or about recovery or about the fact that you could, you know, lead a life alongside anxiety or an OCD or eating disorders or depression. There we go. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. No one had no one had talked to me about that, you know. So no one had said, you know. So I, I went to uh when I was in hospital, I, I said to the psychiatrist, look at there, are there any books that you can tell me about or websites, anything about how people live alongside this stuff? Because I think I really need to hear stories of recovery and stories of hope and how people continue to live their lives. And they were like, mm. no, we're not we're not aware of anything. And I was like, oh, for goodness sake, you know. And at that point, I had just been given big CBT books, you know, academic books, 
So 500 page books that, you know, give you homework and have to tell you what to do. And, you know, I couldn't read, I couldn't read two sentences. So I was, and still am an avid reader. But at that point I was reading, you know, novels upon novels upon novels until I got really ill. So I have a, I have a book journal where I write down all the books that I've read. Um, and the year before, I, I, don't know, I think I've maybe read about 40 books. And the year I was ill, nothing. There's literally nothing in, in, in that page in the journal at all. Because my ability to concentrate, you know, my brain was too full, so I could read nothing. So they kept going, oh, we've got this really great book by this eminent psychologist, all about CBT and depression. And I would look at it and go, what, you, you're expecting me to read this? It's like, seriously, how, how am I supposed to read this? And I would read two sentences and go, well, I can't, you know, and it would be in scientific jargon. It would tell me to do things and it would explain, you know, in great detail what my brain was doing. And I'm going, I, I can't, I'm just trying to live at this point. <laughs> how, how, how can I, how can I take in that information? I can't do it. So what I wanted was to hear from other people about how you recover, you know, mm, yeah. not in the, yeah. you know, and when I when I use the word recover, I mean manage. You know, how do I manage every day? Yeah. And how? Tell me about hope. You know, tell me about the stuff that you can also do alongside this stuff. Tell me about you know the moments of joy that you've experienced. Tell me what techniques you use to manage this day to day. You know, what do you do? And it just wasn't there. It just wasn't there at all. But I realized that so when I, I remember really clearly being out of psychiatric hospital and sat on my bed at home with my cat and kind of going, I need to do something about this. I need to hear stories of hope. I, I, I know I need this for my, my, my recovery journey. So I started a website called The Recovery Letters, which um, has people writing about uh, their recovery from depression and writing to other people that are currently unwell. Um, and they don't, you know, they certainly don't disguise how awful depression is, but they also say you can live alongside it and there is hope, you know, and things do change and things do alter and it's not always going to be like that. And that website and then subsequently that book kind of helped me immeasurably because it, you know, it gave me focus for something to do, but it was also amazing to hear stories of recovery. People like me with the same anxious thoughts and the same uh you know sometimes desires to kill themselves or dark thoughts or not being able to get out of bed were also living lives so they were also you know husbands and parents and you know dog owners and you know all kinds of stuff and they were living their lives and and yeah they were having struggles but they were still having moments of joy you know and that that project took, took off massively and, and um got lots of publicity around the world and uh, done really well and, and um yeah the website's still up and running and it, it just simply but beautifully says to people that are struggling now it's not always going to be as bad as this you know there is hope and because mm. i realized that, that that hope is the antidote to depression and anxiety you know hope is is without that then there is nothing else in terms of you need to say you need to see a way forward have to see a way forward to to carry on and if you're not yeah that, it's really hard it's like if you if you want to learn how to apply acceptance then first of all you have to have some hope no because if you don't have hope why are you even going to bother to want to try to accept it 
I mean, it's um, it really reminds me what you were saying earlier about when you kind of, you know, you were asking for some some material or some books that actually il um, illustrated that. How can I, you know, how can I read about people who've actually managed to get through this, who, uh, you know, to give me some hope and to make me feel like this isn't a, a pointless journey that I'm not resigned to always be suffering and it reminds me when I was in a you know kind of my darkest period with with OCD I didn't even know it was OCD and I was just constantly looking for for books or any material at all I could find that that would help me and so much of the books I came across were like you're talking about were kind of CBT stuff that I found so dry and boring and just hard to 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 kind of get on with um or just like positive thinking kind of stuff which wasn't really that helpful either and then i came across uh, a book by uh, john kabat-zinn um full uh, full catastrophe living which was the first book that i read that actually blew me away in terms of kind of what you're talking about here i think of of having hope of realizing that actually i can be this person who struggles with anxiety and, and other mental health issues and still have a meaningful and positive life um it was the thing that taught me about acceptance and probably it's one of mm. the biggest turning points in in my own personal story so yeah i really i really get that so um yeah so so this then inspired you to become uh, an author it did yeah it did um it, it, it yeah it really it, it kind of turned my life around really i so yeah the recovery letters book came out and was was very successful and, and you know and it's you know it's an account of kind of about 40 people from around the world have written a letter to mm. people's people suffering and so yeah that that did very well and was a world book like book and yeah has, has done incredibly well um and then i and then i kind of really wanted to write more about the ways that I manage my mental, mental health and mental illness mm. and I realized just through I, I write stuff down a lot so I was looking at my phone and I was writing all these different ways down that I manage my anxiety and my depression and I was like oh this is okay I keep doing that and I keep doing this and, and that's a really useful thing and I kind of thought actually I kind of want to share this stuff I wonder whether other people are going to want to hear about this as well so yeah I, I I have a book contract with with Little Brown in the UK, and so yeah, the first book that that I wrote was, was called How to Tell Depression to Piss Off. We we did we tried for other swear words, but Amazon get a bit funny about other swear words. <laughs> but I still I, they still blink out the eye and piss. Yeah, um, yeah. But um, so yeah, and, and I wanted it to be a book. I wanted it to be definitely accessible. Mm. I wanted it to have humour in it. Um, I wanted to have short chapters so that people could actually read it. Mm. You know, I wanted the language, language to be simple enough that people could understand it. I wanted it to be unscientific. Mm. Um, I wanted to be full of hope as well. Yeah. Um, and those things, because those are the things that I need. You know, it, I'm, I was kind of writing the book that I, that I wanted to read. And I kind of thought, well, I, I, again, I can't be the only person wanting an easier read about depression you know mm. um yeah and that's done wonderfully well as well it's published in yeah, seven languages around the world and yeah it's, it's doing incredibly well and i and i think it's because 
when you're so unwell with depression, actually reading and concentration is really difficult and you need simple, accessible advice. Um, I use humor a lot because I think actually sometimes when you're reading about mental health, that can be difficult enough and that can be triggering reading about, about mental health. So I include loads of humor in it because I think it then makes it easier to read. And actually a lot of dark humor is very useful with, with mental illness, you know? Um, that I find that a really effective tool as well. So yeah, it's 40 ways of getting your life back. And, and, and I'm, by, by that, I don't mean that the depression goes because like you were saying earlier, acceptance is a really important thing. So I, I, when I, I and also I can remember the point when I accepted that I was going to be living with anxiety and depression, and it was a real revelation, really, because I'd spent you know years and years and years going, I am going to get rid of these things. I am going to yeah. get rid of them, and I am you know because you know ever the perfectionist, yeah, I am going to get rid of them. So I am going to be the best at getting rid of these things. And <laughs> when I realised that you know that doesn't work, that doesn't work. And all that was happening is that I was feeling worse and worse and worse and worse because I wasn't able to do it. So when I released that, when I said to myself, actually, it's not gonna go and it's all right that it's not gonna go. And of course you want it to go. So acceptance isn't bowing down to the illness. It's definitely not that. It's just, it's just saying, it's gonna be with me. It's gonna be yeah. with me. Yeah. And it's not gonna go completely. And we have to go from that point. Because if I go from a point of trying to get rid of it all the time and it never going, I feel worse and I spiral down and I spiral down. And this is just, you know, self-perpetuating. So, so yeah, a bit like yourself, that was a real revelation to me of going, okay, I need to accept it. I need, I need to accept it. But as I was saying, acceptance doesn't mean not fighting. So I, I battle every day with the thoughts, you know? So I accept that depression is going to be with me. So, and anxiety is going to be with me. So I, I, I talk a lot of it about, um, I use a lot of metaphors, which is, which I find really useful. So it's depression for me and anxiety is a bit like a cuckoo. So cuckoos take over nests. So it's, it's I know that this cuckoo is going to be with me. I don't like the cuckoo, but I can punch it. You know, I can punch it and I can go, I'm not going to be dominated by you. And I'm going to continue to live my life despite you being in the nest with me. You know, I, I acknowledge you're going to be in the nest, but I'm in the nest too. And when you get too big, I'm going to give you a whack in the face. I'm not endorsing hitting birds, by the way. Don't, no. <laughs> <laughs> Don't do that. Don't do that. Um, but I am, I am saying you can generate anger. You know, we talk a lot about anger being a really negative thing, but anger can be incredibly motivational. You know? Oh yeah, absolutely. And yeah. I'm a huge advocate for using anger with, with mental illness because it gets you to be able to go, okay, this is with me, but I'm not going to be dominated by this. I am going to punch it and punch it and punch it. And by punching it and talking back and saying, I know that voice, I recognize that voice, that is the anxiety voice that yeah. I can then go, more of me comes up, you know, the rest of me that's been, you know, punched down by the cuckoo rises up and I can start to listen to those bits that go, no, I'm not going to listen to the anxiety voice or the yeah. telling me. I think, this, I think this is a really important message, actually, because I think there's often a misconception with acceptance 
you know that acceptance means that we're just lying down and and giving up and agreeing with you know all of this negative stuff whereas actually it doesn't mean that at all like you've just really pointed out really well with that metaphor it's effectively you know accepting the stuff that we can't change but you know so you can't change the fact that perhaps you get intrusive thoughts popping up into your head you can't do anything about that um with ocd that's one of the the major issues is is that people get intrusive thoughts yeah or images or ideas that they don't like and then of, of course want to try to do something to 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 get rid of them um which just perpetuates it even more so we can't we can't change that However, what we can change is how much attention we give to that. And I think this is uh, what you're talking about here. And I think it is helpful, perhaps, to, to uh, allow ourselves some, some anger in that regard, to, mm. to, to accept the fact that these thoughts are here, but to really recognize that we have a much more power than perhaps we, we realize, that we don't have to ruminate, for example, um, you know, rumination is so often one of those things that just generates so much pain um, on top of, you know, what was already a difficult thing anyway. And I think that's where our personal power lies in, in choosing kind of how we respond to these thoughts um, and actually allowing yourself to get in touch with all of your emotions um, and anger being one of those, you know, it's, it's, not healthy to to push down emotions in general and and i think it's it's healthy to sometimes get in touch with that anger and, and use it in your advantage uh in situations like you were just talking about absolutely you know i i use anger in, in lots of ways so i i so i i have a sort of routine before i go to bed where i i have to check that the bathroom's like light switches off in case it electrocutes somebody so but i've gone from doing that about seven times to doing it twice which is which is huge and 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 for me i've done that because i've gone i am not going to be dominated by this this isn't going to rule my life you know um and i go because that is the ocd voice telling me to do this that is the anxiety and the ocd voice and and the intrusive thoughts of well, actually, someone is going to then my husband's going to then switch on the light. He's going to be electrocuted and die. And you're going to be responsible. And, and, and you know, and away your thoughts go. But so rather than listening to that catastrophizing, mm. I, I bring up the voice of me that is really pissed off with the OCD, really pissed off with it <laughs> because it's telling me to do it seven times. So, you know, I've gone down from about seven to two, which, you know, is great. Yeah, and it's like. Good. Yeah. I may not be able to do it just once, but that's all right. But the yeah. anger has fueled me to go from seven to two. And I and I'll use that anger, yeah, for each of my sort of different mental health struggles. I'll, I'll use that to go. So when anxiety is telling me, you know, not to do a certain thing or not to go to a party or not to not to travel or whatever it might be, I'll go, no, I'm not going to be dominated by this. Because I don't, I don't want to be ruled by it, you know. I will live alongside it, and I will acknowledge and accept it is alongside me. But as soon as that cuckoo starts to get bigger and starts pecking me, I'll go, I'll whack it down and whack it down and whack it do down. Know, do 
you know what I really like about it as well, this metaphor is, is that you're separating out the OCD from yourself. Yep. So by using the analogy of, of the cuckoo, it's kind of, because that's really important now, we, we have to have self-compassion. And so if we use that anger against ourselves, then yep. I don't think that's so helpful. But when you use it in this way, where you kind of separate out, you know, these different parts of us, and we clearly see this kind of obsessive part, say, as, as a cuckoo, then it allows you to use that anger in a helpful way, which I think is really, really healthy. Absolutely, yeah. Because it it's, not, it's not attacking me, you know. Mm. In fact, it's yeah. doing the opposite. It's bringing me up. You know? Yeah, exactly. It's, exactly. It's separating yeah. out the ill bits of me um, and kind of going, well, they have different voices and they tell me, you know, so yeah, the OCD voice will do the switches and the anxiety voice will you know, say something else and the depression voice will say something else. But by yeah, making that separation, I can go, well, that that that's the illness. That's the illness. And the illness is not all of me, you know? It's a bit of me, but actually none of these, so OCD or anxiety or, or depression lie and they never do you any favor. They yeah. are they are yeah. they never have your best interests at heart. So why am I going to listen to something that doesn't have my best interest at heart? I'm going to punch it instead because that's, that's a much better way of doing this is to get angry at it and go, no, actually, do you know what? I'm not, I'm not going to listen to you. I'm not going to listen to you. I'm going to do my best. I can hear the voice, but also I'm going to, so depression will say to me, don't get out of bed, you know, um, don't go to the shops, don't go to work, don't, you know, don't make that phone call. And it takes a lot of effort with these things, you know, but the reward is that after you've done that, after you've started hit, hitting back, then you kind of go, oh my goodness, I, I hit back at it. And I, and I continue to do things in spite of that voice telling you that. Yeah. And then you have evidence that you can do it again and you can do it again and you can do it again. And yes, you need to keep hitting, but as you keep practicing that, it gets, it gets easier. It gets easier to do because you, so all the different, the different, you know, my depression voice is really whiny and the OCD voice has a slightly different, you know, so I can go, I can recognize it and go, yeah, no, no, no. Okay, OCD voice, here we are. You're telling me to do that, but actually I'm not going to do the switch seven times. I'm going to do it two and then I'm going to go to bed, you know, and, and after the anxiety dies down a bit of going, oh, I'm going to really keep my husband. Then I then I can feel really proud. Actually, you know, I feel really proud because I haven't done it seven times. And so the OCD hasn't won. It hasn't won. You know, I've won because it, it hasn't made me do it seven times. And then so it raises your self esteem. It gives much more compassion for yourself and and pride in how you're managing. It gives you evidence of pride, which absolutely, yeah, with these debilitating you know uh, problems is is so important. Absolutely, yeah, it's really really powerful. Um, if you could, uh, if you could only give one piece of advice to people who are really struggling with, with be it anxiety, depression, uh, or other mental health problems, what would you, what, what would it be? Do you know what? I think, I think it is probably around, around change and around the fact that things change. Cause I, I think when we're in the midst of, you know, severe OCD or severe depression or severe anxiety, it feels like nothing will change. So what I would say is observe change happening in the world. So clock things that are changing. So, 
you know, the trees are turning or, you know, there's a child growing up. So observe change because it, it feels like change is not going to happen to you. It feels like it's always going to be this bad and it's not. But you need to observe change to get change into your head. So I, I, I sat for a long time going, this is never going to get any better. It's never going to get any better. Nothing's going to get any better. But change is constant. And that also applies to our illness. So I would say, look at change happening around you and know that that change will also happen for you. Um, because it makes you feel less stagnant and less stuck. Because we're in, when we're in the midst of a really acute episode of OCD or anxiety or depression, we feel completely stuck and paralyzed. And we need to feel that you know, there is change. It will change. It will get better. There are things you need to do, but it will get better. It's not always going to be this bad. Mm. And that can be really liberating. And a lot of the time, I think that comes from hearing other people's stories. So listening to podcasts like this about hearing other people's stories. So, you know, hearing your story of OCD and, and how that's changed. And so when you listen to other people's stories, you realize, actually, if they can do it, I can do it too. So I'm not as stuck as I think I am. Mm. Absolutely. So, yeah. Yeah. look at change and realizing that that change will also happen to you fantastic yeah i think that's a really important message and coming back to hope again you know that you were, you were speaking about yeah. earlier yeah if um if people want to to find out more about you and your and your books what can they what can they do yes so you can you can find my website which is www.jameswithy.com um you can find me on twitter at james w withy on instagram um also my books are uh yeah they're on on amazon but no try buy independent bookshops that would be lovely um but you'll find me on goodreads and on amazon and yeah just type my name in and then and, and i'll be there um and, and yeah send me a message you know i reply to email <laughs> <laughs> you know, do, do send me a message yeah. um yeah the books the book the books are there the next two books are coming out the anxiety book how to tell anxiety to sort off is out in uh, sixth of january um so that's you can you know please pre-order that go for it and it's in that book's very much in the same line as, as the depression book and so the grief will be as well it's accessible ways to manage depression um to manage anxiety rather um and again told with humor and practical stuff that you can do yeah. Mm. so yeah they're, they're come and say hello that would be lovely that's great okay james thank you so much for your time it's been really great talking uh, to you and, and finding out about your story which i'm sure you know lots of people are going to find really helpful thank you too just a quick reminder that if you want to get a free session all you need to do to get that is to head over to my website www.robertjamescoaching.com and there you can leave me a message and we can arrange the uh, free session and now just a quick reminder of my disclaimer any information that you view on my website instagram page facebook group or anywhere else online or any information that you listen to on the podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to be a substitute for actual medical or mental health advice from a doctor, psychologist or any other medical or mental health professional.